Henry, that was a good introduction except for that one part. <clears throat> and I, I'm very thankful that you all have been praying for us, and I hope after this sermon you're not praying for us to leave. Um, but uh, we, we are really excited to be in Florence, and, and we're not exactly in Florence yet. We're kind of in transition, but we're, we're headed this direction. Um, but this was one of those opportunities that, that we, we reached out to Scott and the church, and um, our, we've had a little piece of our heart has always been in Florence, even, even as we went to Fort Payne and to Dothan, and so we're excited uh, to, to be back here ministering uh, among you guys and alongside you guys. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 7, Luke 7. Paul says in Romans fifteen twenty that he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel. And that is my ambition as well. Um, every time that I have an opportunity to teach or preach, that that is what I want to communicate the clearest. And so I, I hope we can do that today together as we look at this passage. Um, I, I want to actually read a few verses from Hebrews. I, I also have been reading through Gentle and Lowly. Um, Got that at the beginning of last summer, and then ended up teaching this whole past year to our youth group in Dothan, um, that book. And so it just was balm for my soul. And so this sermon really is birthed out of the reading of that book. Uh, and so you'll, you, if you've been reading and showing up for Sunday school, you'll probably see a lot of, of, of ties to what Dane Ortland uh, says in his book, or he writes in his book. But, but one particular chapter struck me, and, and I want to read the, the verses from Hebrews that that's based on because I think it ties great into this chapter in Luke. So let me read first from Hebrews 5. I'm going to read the first nine uh, verses here. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of his people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And I, I love that verse too. And that's the thing that kind of just stuck out to me, that, that Jesus, the high priest, our king, the prophet, deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. And the question is, well, what's the difference between the two? And I think that's important as we move into Luke chapter 7. The ignorant here are those who have been without the Scriptures. They haven't been taught about Christ or the Scriptures. And so they don't... They don't know what God desires of them. They don't know what God requires. The wayward, on the other end, have had the Scriptures. 
They've learned from the Scriptures, maybe even taught the Scriptures, memorized the Scriptures, but in some way they've strayed or rebelled or maybe even taken the Scriptures and used those for their own personal gain. We see both of those, the ignorant and the wayward, in Luke chapter 7. At the beginning of Luke chapter 7, and really throughout Jesus' ministry up to this point, he has been in Capernaum. He has been doing all sorts of ministry, healing the, healing the sick, raising the dead, but mostly he has been preaching and teaching throughout uh, this, this area. And it was custom in, in the Jewish culture that when a, a teacher would pass through the area, um, that the Pharisees would invite him into their home like th- because it was, a, it was a status symbol for them to have these uh, preeminent uh, teachers in their midst. And so when we see this passage in Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36, that's very likely why Jesus is at the home of Simon the Pharisee. As he has been preaching, word has gotten out of his notoriety, and he's been invited into the home of Simon. And so let me read Luke seven thirty-six through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not, you, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray for our time together. Holy Spirit, would you come and work in and through the Word? Would you speak through me? May I be a vessel for the glory of God and the exaltation of Jesus. Holy Spirit, be at work in the hearts and the minds of these folks who are listening this morning. May you help root out our sin. 
And may you hide the truth of God's word in our heart. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so, I have four points this morning. And I know that that's not what preachers are supposed to do. They're only supposed to have three, okay? But it was my first one, so I really wanted to get, you know, I wanted to, you know, a little extra here right off the bat. Um, and so, I want to look at the ignorant, sinful woman, the wayward, sinful Pharisee, the, a contrast between the two of them, and then gen, uh, Jesus' gentleness to both groups of sinners. But I want to ask a question first, and we kind of we we uh, kind of stole a little of my thunder in Sunday school. So, um, but we were talking about the beauty of Christ's heart. But I I want to ask you, what's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Just think about that. The most beautiful thing you've ever seen. For, for a lot of us, and I love the outdoors, I start thinking about, you know, being on the beach and watching the sunset or mountains or things like um, the pyramids, the Great Wall of China, which I've never seen in person, or Niagara Falls. I mean, there, there's just something about those things that just when we see them, we stand in awe. We're speechless. It kind of reminds us of our own insignificance. Like when you're standing on the beach and you look at across that vast ocean, it does something in your soul, right? I mean, that's not just me. I mean, it, it, it kind of takes you places that, you know, you don't go to normally when you're just driving down Cox Creek, right? I mean, it's, it does something different. And so often, though, it's not just the greatness and the vastness of those things that draw us in, but it's just the sheer beauty. It just, it just kind of makes us move toward those things. Uh, this has happened to me several times. The most vivid for me happened uh, not too far this way at Woodmont Baptist Church on January the 4th, or excuse me, January the 10th, 2004. That was my wedding day, and... <clears throat> The photographer that we had wanted to take all the wedding photos before the ceremony. And so, you know, that was going to mess up the tradition of the groom seeing the bride before the actual ceremony. So they cleared everybody out of the sanctuary. They had me turn and face the stage, and then they brought Katie in behind me and said, turn around. And when I did, I was just totally struck by her physical beauty and the smile on her face, which I was really excited about. You know, it's never good if you turn around and she's frowning or crying um, when you're about to get married. But it, I was just one of those, like, it was just a speechless moment. And I'm sure my jaw was open and I was like, wow. And, and the physical beauty drew me in, right? And it still does to this day, but even more so, it's her heart. Her heart toward me over these years is the thing that keeps bringing me back, keeps drawing me in. And I say all that to say this, our standing before God is very similar, that we are struck by the vastness, the greatness, the awesomeness, and we certainly ought to worship him for those things. But the beauty of his heart, the gentleness and the goodness of God is the thing that kind of keeps bringing us back, keeps drawing us in. Um, we struggle, when we sin, when we doubt, when we fear, it's those things that keep pulling us back in. 
And that's exactly what has happened to this woman in Luke 7. She has been drawn in by the beauty of Christ. And again, not the outward appearance. Isaiah tells us there is nothing uh, great and wonderful about the physical appearance of Jesus. But she's pulled in by the, his, the beauty of his message, the beauty of his heart, and that gentleness and that grace that he extends. And so I want to look at that, how, how that affected the ignorant, sinful woman. Luke describes her in verse 37 as a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, Jewish culture, women were at the bottom of the totem pole. And especially a woman like this who was a great sinner. Her vocation made her a deplorable woman in the eyes of the culture. Not only that, her vocation made her widely known in the, in the city. So everybody knew her, everybody knew her sin. I can't imagine the weight she must have felt carrying that around. That every time she went in a market, every time she went to draw water, everywhere she went, somebody knew her and knew her sin. And she must have been crushed by shame and guilt. And then at some point in this ministry of Jesus throughout Capernaum, she encounters Christ. Maybe she was there when Christ gave the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe she was there and saw some dead body raised back to life. Maybe she heard him talk about the kingdom that was to come. Or maybe she was one of those who drew in really close when Jesus said, come to me all those who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We don't know exactly the circumstances of her encounter with Christ, but we know it's happened because of her response here in Luke 7. She's radically changed. That grace and mercy of Jesus has consumed her, and when she finds out that Jesus is having a meal at Simon's house, she sees this as her opportunity to go and worship her Savior. And so she comes to Simon's house with ointment to anoint Jesus' feet as an act of reverence. Now, here's the thing. This is a significant risk for her. She is a, a, a sinner, a woman of the city, and she's walking into a home full of men, full of Pharisee men. And so there's a lot of risk involved. Women in that culture would not speak to men, and they certainly would not speak with rabbis in public. And so she has no idea what's about to happen. These, these are the same group of people who would shame her, scorn her, send her away. And yet, she walks right in there, in the midst of these men who would have um, turned her away. And she navigates those men, and she comes to Christ. And she begins to move closer and closer to Jesus as he's talking and eating. And it's incredible, Luke says, 
she comes to the feet of Jesus who would have been reclining. So she comes to his feet. And when she is face to face with her Savior, she's overcome with emotions and she just bursts into tears. And those thankful tears from this sinful woman begin to flow down her cheeks and fall on the feet of Jesus. She's embarrassed and so she stoops down quickly and she lets her hair down, which is a shameful act for women in that culture. She begins to wipe those tears off Jesus' feet. And she puts the ointment on his feet and she kisses his feet. And again, this act of worship. It's amazing to see her drawn in by Christ, radically changed, and willing to take this risk to worship her Savior. And it's obvious that what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, or excuse me, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says, you've been transferred to the domin- from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the Son that God loves. She's experienced that. Her life is different. And so she comes with that changed heart. She comes with her burden having been lifted to express her thankfulness. Unfortunately, though, there are many Pharisees in the room, and they totally misunderstand the gravity of this moment. They have no compassion on her whatsoever. And right in the midst of her worship, Simon the host begins to stir inwardly. And so let's take a look at Simon, the wayward, sinful Pharisee. Luke records that in the midst of this worship, Simon says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, Pharisees would have been very, very familiar with the Scriptures. They would have memorized large portions of the Bible. They even taught the Scriptures. And yet Jesus will say of the Pharisees in Matthew 23 that they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Paul will say it another way in Romans 2, and he's really speaking generally of the Jewish culture as a whole. It certainly would apply to the Pharisees. Paul writes in Romans 2.17, If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you're instructed from the law... And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, wayward Simon, he knows the Scriptures. And yet his heart has remained unchanged. 
He has used the Scriptures, used His position so that His deeds can be seen by others, as Christ said. He's not lifted a finger to help relieve the burdens of people. As a matter of fact, Christ will say, you just keep, continue to heap burdens on folks. That is why the name of God is being blasphemed. Simon scoffs at Jesus here, this man. In other words, doesn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Doesn't recognize him as prophet, priest, king. He says, this man, he must be a mere mortal. Because even we Pharisees know not to interact with this kind of woman, and especially not in public. It's almost like you can see him kind of turn his nose up at Christ as he's interacting with this woman. There's a difference between the ignorant and the wayward, and especially how they respond to Christ. And I might say it like this. The ignorant know their sin, and they own it. While the wayward know their sin and cover it. The ignorant know their sin and own it. The wayward know their sin and cover it. And let me explain. The ignorant woman understands her sin, right? It's easy for her to understand her sin. She lives it every day. It's her work. It's what she does. And she's felt that hopelessness of being burdened by it. She's been weighed down with the guilt and shame. She knows there's nothing that she can do to reverse what she's already done. She can't fix it on her own. So she turns to the one who can free her from that shame and guilt. Now, wayward Simon, on the other hand, he knows his sin, but he chooses to cover it up with outward righteousness and church activities. He looks good to the culture, right? All those other men besides Christ who are in there, Simon looks great to those guys. But he's dead rotten. No change of heart. He chooses to deal with his sin on his own, with his own effort, his own will. And here, but here's the mind-blowing part of this that I want us to, to really focus on. Jesus extends grace to both Simon and the sinful woman. Now, a lot of times what we do is we read this and we think, well, it just extends grace to the sinful woman. But look at how he interacts with Simon. Okay, I think that's ex extremely important. He turns to Simon in the midst of this scoffing. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, you and I have probably heard those words before, right? I've got something to say to you, right? But that's how it's communicated to us. Am I the only one? Is that the only, am I the only one who's in the fingers out like this? I got something to say to you. And it's always something harsh and sharp and hurtful. We've been there. Now, just think if you were Jesus, prophet, priest, king, Messiah, and these guys are not recognizing your position. Jesus doesn't get angry. He doesn't yell. He just simply turns and says, I've got something I need to say. We, on the other hand, let's just take example of if our position within this church. Let's just say that. Somebody doesn't recognize that. Often we get bruised egos, right? They say, well, I'm... I've been a member of this church for 20 years since it was planted. And they, they get angry. 
You didn't recognize my position. You don't know how hard I've worked here. That's, that's sin in our heart, right? Because we want to be recognized. I want to be championed. I want to be patted on the back. And there's none of that in Christ, who's the Savior of the world. He just simply turns and uses this opportunity to teach, to listen, to ask questions. And he simply gives Simon this parable. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answers correctly, and Jesus praises him. And he uses this opportunity to expose Simon to his own sin. Now, that might not sound gracious to you. But what is very ungracious is to be left in your sin, unknowingly in your sin. And Christ peels back Simon's heart and says, you're dead rotten. Now Simon has a choice. Do I turn to Christ, who can help me overcome my rotten heart? Or do I continue to just do what my culture says I'm supposed to do as a Pharisee? Just keep having all the answers. Keep, keep teaching. Keep looking good. But that's graciousness from Christ to Simon. He had every right to do just what he did to the money changers, right? To make a whip and drive him away. But he doesn't. He's tender. He's merciful. And I think it's really easy to see the grace toward the sinful woman, right? That there's never any pushback. There's never any uh, worry about her coming to him to talk, even touching his feet, kissing his feet. Her faith is evidenced by her coming to Christ. In other words, something has already happened in this woman's life that has radically changed her heart. She's, she's coming to Jesus to express thankfulness. So when he, Jesus says, your faith has saved you, he's not saying you've earned this. He's saying it's, it's evidence that you have been saved, that you've come here, you've taken these risks to worship literally at the feet of Jesus. She's so captivated that she couldn't stay away. That's what I long for in my own heart. I want to be so captivated by Jesus that I can't stay away. Even on my worst days and in the midst of my worst sin, I'm drawn to Jesus. I want to go move toward Jesus. And the great thing is, Jesus takes away all her doubt. Again, just think of her past, all the way to that sin, all those years of sinning. There's got to be something in her that says, I just don't know if this is right. Like, I just don't know if I'm forgiven. Surely there's got to be more. I mean, we struggle with that, right? I struggle with that. Maybe that's not what you want to hear on the first day, the new guy's here. Like, you're supposed to be the pastor. Now you just said you struggle with doubt. And it happens. Certainly she was struggling with that. And Jesus takes all that away. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That peace that she had longed for, that inner peace that had been stolen away by her many, many sins, Jesus says, is now yours. Through His power 
and his word. Now, how do we take principally what is going on in this passage and apply it to our lives? How do we not just walk away with some head knowledge? How, do, how does this transform our hearts? So I, I'll, I'll give you three things. See, now I'm back on track. You know, was four, now get three. You follow me? We good? Everybody still awake? Need more coffee? Um, here's the first. Own your sin and bring it to Jesus. Own your sin and bring it to Jesus. Again, Simon, he's got sin, but he went a different direction. The sinful woman, however, knows her sin, and she comes to Christ with it. We're, I mean, I know Scott said this. I know multiple people have said, we're all sinners. None of us are, are squeaky clean innocent, okay? Some of us have sins that are out in the open. In other words, everybody knows my sin. I've, I've had this outburst or this is my struggle. Everybody knows it. Maybe you're one of those people. Go to Christ with that. Maybe you're kind of like Simon. You're trying to cover it all up. Put on your cloak of righteousness. Look good at, on Sunday morning. But really, your heart is rotten. And I would encourage you to go to Jesus as well. Take that sin and repent. And turn from that sin and turn toward Jesus. Whatever desire you have for this sin in your life, turn that desire, channel that desire toward Jesus Christ. That's what it means to repent, to, to go. We're moving this way toward the sin. We want to turn the opposite direction. And it doesn't just mean go away from the sin. It means away from the sin and to Christ. Does that make sense? There's a difference. Maybe owning your sin and taking it to Jesus means you need to talk with someone about it who can help hold you accountable, who can help lead you out of the darkness that you're in. Maybe it's something you never told anybody in your life. But I'm going to use... Uh, uh, sin is like a cockroach, right? It flourishes in the dark. But when you flip the light on, they scatter. And that's exactly what confessing is is that casting a light on those sins so that they can scatter. Second thing, we, we've got to be willing to take some risks for Jesus. And I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but look at the woman understanding her culture and what she was willing to risk to go in and worship at the feet of Jesus should challenge us. Because our culture that we're living in is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. Okay? Was just indifferent. Like, we don't really care. You do your thing, we'll do ours. That's over, okay? And we're, it's, it's hostility now. And so there are going to be challenges every single day to your pursuit of Christ. At home, at your job, in your neighborhood, at your school. It's going to happen. Be encouraged by this woman's pursuit of Jesus who was willing to risk a lot. Certainly willing to risk reputation, public shame, and disgrace. She walks into this house of men and says, I gotta worship Jesus. We've gotta be willing to do that ourselves, to carry the gospel to our neighbors, to our friends. And then lastly, I would just encourage us, and I hope you find this encouraging, for us to go in peace. We struggle so much to
to believe that their sins really are forgiven. And if you are by faith trusting in Jesus, then you have the same peace that this woman has. It has all been dealt with. On that cross, he took your shame, your guilt, your sin on his shoulders. And he paid the debt for that. He absorbed God's wrath for those sins. And the Bible says over and over and over, God is not going to hold those over your head any longer. As far as the east is from the west, those sins have been separated from you. And God chooses to remember them no more. Go in peace. One of the um, advantages to be un unemployed in the summer, uh, and there's not many, I might, I'm going to throw that in there, is uh, you don't have to rush through the morning coffee. Like, you can actually sit down and, like, just drink the coffee. It's nice. And it just so happens that most of the time when I'm drinking my coffee, the Andy Griffith Show is on. And so I love the Andy Griffith Show, so I have to take in a little Andy and Opie. And so a few weeks ago, I'm watching the Andy Griffith Show, and, you know, like always, it's Ope, uh, Andy's, he's dating this new girl in town. Opie's getting all jealous. And so he begins to sabotage the relationship between Andy and this girl. And the, one of the things I love about Andy Griffith is everybody's going to come clean before that 30 minutes is over, you know. Real life takes a little longer sometimes. So it's getting toward the end. Opie, you know, he, he can't take it anymore. He's gotta, he comes to his dad and he's like, you know, I've been doing all these things to sabotage this relationship because you were just getting so involved with her, I thought you were going to forget about me. This is Opie talking to Andy. And so, of course, typical you know, Sheriff Taylor fashion, pulls Opie up in his lap and he looks him in the eyes and he says, Opie, you are my son. You're a part of me. I could never forget you. Not forever and ever and ever. So many times our sin makes us, at least on the inside, a little bit like Opie. Where we feel like uh, God's just going to forget about me. Like, he sins so much, I, I can't deal with this guy anymore, I can't deal with this girl anymore, I've, ha I've had enough, just forget this person. We feel that way, we feel that threat of being left by the Lord. But it's passages like this that I hope are like the words of Sheriff Taylor to Opie that remind us, look, you, you are a son or a daughter of the king. That you are a part of Christ. That he will never, ever forget us forever and ever and ever. He will always love you. He gave his life on the cross to set you free from your sin and your shame and your guilt. He did that for this woman. He said, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. It's who Jesus is. And so I pray today, as we leave this place, if your faith is in Jesus, you would go in peace, knowing that you're part of Him, and that He loves you. And if you're not, if you've never put your faith and your trust in Christ, 
then talk to us. I'd be glad to talk to you. There are elders here who would be glad to talk with you about what that means to put your faith and your trust in Christ. May we all come to Jesus and live. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for certainly your goodness and mercy, which we don't deserve. Jesus, thank you for taking on flesh, absorbing the Father's wrath, so that we would never, ever have to know what that feels like. Holy Spirit, again, plant these words of the Scriptures in our hearts and our minds, not so that we leave here smarter, wiser, but so that we leave here changed, Lord, different, more drawn to you. I pray this in Christ's name.